The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society. And we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. questions you always had, the answers you were never given, the place to seek the truth. Welcome to Veritas. Greetings to everyone around the world, and a warm welcome to another edition of Veritas at VeritasRadio.com. I'm your host, Mel Fabregas, and I sincerely thank you for joining me once again. And if this is your first time, or your truth journey brought you here, welcome home. To listen to this entire interview and all of our material, just go to VeritasRadio.com and subscribe. You can also purchase our USB drives with all our seasons, including the season that just ended, Season 6. So just go to the Veritas store. It's now available. And I want to thank you for the wonderful comments received on our Season 7 premiere with Cliff High. Remember, you can watch the video and download the audio. And I want to apologize for the delay in releasing that uh, interview, but I had no idea that video would take so much time. Some are asking if we're going to start doing more videos, and the answer is probably yes. Again, I had no idea it would take so long to produce. I won't make any guarantees, but I will hope we can produce a few more videos throughout the year. It was not long after the first Japanese bombs fell on the American naval ships at Pearl Harbor that conspiracy theories began to circulate, charging that President Franklin Delano Roosevelt and his chief military advisors knew of the impending attack well in advance. Robert Stinnett, who served in the U.S. Navy with distinction during World War II, examines recently declassified American documents and concludes that, far more than merely knowing of the Japanese plan to bomb Pearl Harbor, Roosevelt deliberately steered Japan into war with America. In September 1940, Roosevelt signed into law a measure providing for a two-ocean navy that would number 100 aircraft carriers, and more importantly, on American governmental documents that offer apparently incontrovertible proof that Roosevelt knowingly sacrificed American lives in order to enter the war on the side of England. Historians have long debated whether President Roosevelt had advanced knowledge of Japan's December 7, 1941 attack on Pearl Harbor, using documents pried loose through the Freedom of Information Act during 17 years of research, Stinnett provides overwhelming evidence that FDR and his top advisors knew that Japanese warships were heading toward Hawaii. FDR, who desired to sway public opinion in support of U.S. entry into World War II, instigated a policy intended to provoke a Japanese attack. The plan was outlined 
in a U.S. Naval Intelligence Secret Strategy Memo of October 1940. Roosevelt immediately began implementing its eight steps, which included deploying U.S. warships in Japanese territorial waters and imposing a total embargo intended to strangle Japan's economy, all of which climaxed in the Japanese attack. And to discuss the truth about Pearl Harbor and FDR, and to remember all the lives lost on this 73rd anniversary of that day of deceit, Robert Stinnett is coming up next. Robert B. Stinnett is a research fellow at the Independent Institute and the author of Day of Deceit, The Truth About FDR and Pearl Harbor. He served in the U.S. Navy from 1942 to 1946, where he earned 10 battle stars on a presidential unit citation. He has worked as a journalist and photographer for the Oakland Tribune, and he is a consultant on the Pacific War for the BBC and for Asahi an NHK television in Japan. In 1986, he resigned his position at the Tribune to devote himself full-time to the extensive and painstaking research through the Freedom of Information Act that was necessary to produce his book, Day of Deceit, another work. And directly from Oakland, California, I would like to welcome, and it's my honor to welcome, Robert B. Stinnett. Hello, Mr. Stinnett, and welcome to Veritas. Thank you uh, for your invitation. It's my pleasure. And as you said, may I call you Bob? Bob, yeah, please. Thank you. And Bob, right before we before we start, before we talk about uh, you and your involvement during World War II and, and your research, I think it's important to credit America's Freedom of Information Act. Without it, could you have been able to conduct your research? Well, that is right. I dedicate my book to the uh, author, uh, uh, he was a Sacramento congressman uh, for the Freedom of Information Act. If it hadn't been for that, could you have been able to to uncover and accomplish all of this in the in the decades you've been researching? I don't think so. Uh, the The Navy had, and the Army had uh, secret, secreted all of the uh, communications intelligence in a Navy vault in Crane, Indiana, and it was locked up there. And you go to National Archives, and they didn't have any uh, records of the communications intelligence between uh, Japan and the United States, and also in the Atlantic between Germany and uh, the United States. Now, let's start with your involvement during World War II. As a young man, you were in the Navy. Tell us about your involvement in World War II before we begin. 
Yes, I, I volunteered uh, to the U.S. Navy as, as a photographer, and they accepted me. And uh, I was assigned, uh, uh, after I went through the various checking in, I was assigned to the Pacific Fleet and the aircraft carrier USS San Jacinto, which is named after uh, a, a battle in Texas in, uh, in the 1800s. And uh, I, I reported to the uh, San Jacinto in uh, December 1944, along with uh, a photographic officer by the name of George H.W. Bush. And uh, it turned out he was, eventually became president of the United States. So I uh, learned aerial photography with him and flew with his plane uh, in, in, in the Pacific uh, against Japanese. We were looking for Japanese submarines. But uh, uh, a lot of planes were shot down, and they were losing photographers, and so we were prohibited from flying on, uh, on combat missions. To put, th- to put things in perspective, uh, as I said before, I like to go in chronological order. Paint a picture, Bob, of the isolationist United States prior to the attack of Pearl Harbor. We had just come out of what were one, the, the population in the United States did not want to join the war. Paint a picture of that time before the attacks of December 7th, 1941. That's, uh, that's right, uh, Mel. The, uh, the, uh, 80% of American adults in a Gallup poll were opposed to getting into Europe's war. That's what they called it, Europe's war. And gold star mothers from uh, World War One were, were picketing or marching on Congress. Uh, and, and, uh, and then Henry Ford, the, the auto mogul, led the opposition. And uh, so did the Hearst newspapers. And, uh, and many other people who were just opposed to, to getting involved again in, a, in what they called Europe's war. And so uh, Roosevelt came up with this idea uh, and adopted a plan to get Japan to attack us at Pearl Harbor and then trigger a treaty that Japan had with Germany that they would all come to one another's aid if attacked by another company, or another, for another nation. And but Roosevelt provoked Japan into attacking us at Pearl Harbor, and he got them to fire the first shot, and and in that way, we, that's how we got into the war. And of course, this was a backdoor deal, just because we really wanted to get into the war against Germany, but the axis, of course, was Germany, Italy, and Japan. Now. Eighty-some percent, as you said, were against joining the war, but seventy-some percent were in favor of imposing an embargo against Japan. That seems a, a bit counter, counterintuitive, Bob. Well, uh, the, uh, you're right about that. We, uh, President Roosevelt uh, did issue embargoes against uh, oil and those kind of supplies for Japan starting in 1940. But uh, there was a loophole in it. It applied only to high octane. You could get octane 87 or 84 or, or, or below the high octane rating. And so the Japanese tankers were filling up at our east or our west coast 
uh, ports and uh, taking them to Japan where they were available to their warships. Now, it's important to talk about the characters involved with this. Uh, let's start with Lieutenant Com- Commander Arthur H. McCollum. And why is he important in your research? Commander uh, McCollum was head of the Far East Intelligence Desk for the U.S. Navy in Washington. He was also a codebreaker. He was born in Japan and uh, in, in new Japanese culture. He wrote a a proposal uh, to the to the Navy commander. Went up to, to uh, it was designed to provoke Japan into attacking the United States. And he suggested uh, adopting eight provocations that would cause her to commit an overt act of war on Pearl Harbor, and uh, that 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 was done, uh, and and. Uh, uh, or, 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 the, 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 he wrote the uh, article, the provocation article, on October seventh, nineteen forty, which is about fourteen months before Pearl Harbor, and so Roosevelt then had, had the, the go ahead to, to start putting these provocations in place. I think it's important to discuss those provocations because once people see where they were, it's page eight of your book. Would you like me to mention some of them or would you like to mention them yourself? Well, uh, there are eight of them and uh, they're printed in my book uh, so readers can can see them. But if you would mention them, uh, one of them was to keep the United States fleet uh, at Pearl Harbor. Uh, We didn't have a two-ocean navy at the time. So the the idea was to move the United States fleet to Pearl Harbor, and uh, that would uh, uh, entice Japanese nationalists uh, to, to attack us uh, there. It also uh, was to, to send American cruiser uh, groups into Japanese water, and then issue the and also issue the. Uh, uh, oil bargains and machine tools and things like that that Japan needed for war. The other other ones were to keep financing the Chinese Civil War, Chiang Kai-shek, and I forgot, oh, and then a, a division of submarines to the Far East, uh, and the other ones, you can you can remind me about it. But they well, were all put in place. There were eight of them. Yes, and they went one by one. Let me just read a few, if I if I might. Make an a yes. number one. Make an arrangement with Britain for the use of British bases in the Pacific, particularly Singapore. And I like to discuss also because a lot of the listeners may not know what the land uh, or land lease program was. Can you share with us what that was? Yes, well, getting he was getting bases from England or in the Pacific, and and those bases were uh, lend lease. You could say that, uh, but the idea was that uh, Britain would uh, let us use their bases in in the Pacific, and we were that was underway uh, in December 1941. We were after uh, the island. Uh, in the South Pacific, called Rabaul, 
and we were preparing that to be one of our bases. It was called uh, Base F, uh, and that was actively being uh, set for the for the fleet. So essentially, we were not part of the war yet, but we were providing the equipment to to England at the time. It's the equivalent of, let's say, your house is burning down, and I give you my hose so that you can put out the fire on your side. But the land lease came after when they said, but we need something in return. And that's when we started using a lot of the bases. Example, Diego Garcia. Isn't that how he came to be? Yes, you're absolutely right. And and Roosevelt used that uh, same to explain it, let let, let in a hose when your neighbor's house is on fire. Now, when you have all these points, let's see, point number two, make an arrangement with Holland for the use of bases, base facilities, and acquisition of supplies in the Dutch East Indies. Now, Indonesia, there was East Timor, there was Portugal involved with Japan. So why was this part of the world so important, and what really caused the embargo? Well, I always like to know why the provocation. For example, in 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 the eastern in the western front, we have Hitler invading Poland, but we really are not told that much here in this part of the world why Hitler did that. Now, why are we provoking Japan? Was it mainly to enter the European front first? The the, the reason we were attacking Japan was from the, the Arthur McCollum memo, which I, uh, is, is I call the first overt act of war. And the whole idea was to get Japan to commit the overt act of war and then trigger the treaty with Germany and Japan. In other words, the backdoor approach to war, as you mentioned earlier. Now, let's put ourselves, um, again, we're American, we're patriotic, yes, but let's put ourselves in the Japanese shoes for a moment. If you're Japan, if you're Emperor Hirohito, what would you have done if he had been provoked that way, could you have another choice? Would you stand down? Well, uh, I think this was the only choice that uh, uh, President Roosevelt had, was to provoke Japan in- into war against the United States as quickly as he could. Because at the time that uh, Commander McCollum wrote this memo, Hitler was uh, bombing uh, England, uh, preparing to invade it, and uh, and then and then uh, conquer the the nation, merge the the Nazi fleet with the British fleet, and then come over to the, uh, North America and invade uh, uh, Bermuda, Canada, the uh, English possessions in the Caribbean, and uh, and use that as a, a launching spot to to attack the United States. And that's what McCollum says in his memo. So Roosevelt, he had no other option. And I I say that in my book. Uh, A lot of people have called him a a warmonger, but there was no other choice for for, for Roosevelt. Uh, If he had done nothing uh, and, and, and Great Britain was defeated, then it opened the gates for the Nazis to come over to North America. But let me rephrase and revisit the question because that's not what I meant. I know what you mean. But if you are the Japanese emperor... 
Thank you for listening. To unlock the full two-hour interview, including video formats, downloads, transcripts, exclusive articles, and more, subscribe to Veritas Plus now. Gain access to our entire archive dating back to 2008. Just click subscribe at veritasradio.com. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. Subscribe now. To listen to the rest and all of our exclusive material, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or join the Veritas Plus family by subscribing. Click on the subscribe button at veritasradio.com. Don't forget to visit the Veritas store for focused life force energy. Get a 15-day free trial today with no credit card required. And if you want to get in touch with Mel, want to be a guest on this radio program, have a guest suggestion, or have feedback, just click on the contact button on our website at veritasradio.com. Now, proceed to the Veritas Plus member section or subscribe to listen to the rest of the interview. You don't want to miss it. Because you don't want to believe, you want to know. What are you waiting for? Subscribe now at veritasradio.com.